This is the captain speaking. Welcome aboard. We are now underway and proceeding on a course that will take us on a voyage of exploration through liquid space. Captain, a giant squid dead ahead. Stand by, repellent charge. Got a whale of a tale to tell you, lads. A whale of a tale or two about the flapping fish and the girls I've loved on nights like this with the moon above. A whale of a tale, and it's all true, I swear by my tattoo. We hope that this voyage you're about to take, 20,000 leagues under the sea, will stimulate your interest in the phenomenon of life in the ocean depths. W. And welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World Information Station. I am your host, Lou Mangello, and this is show number 301 for the week of November 18th, 2012. Happy Thanksgiving to everyone celebrating here in the United States. Thank you for letting me share my passion for Disney with you each and every week. I'm here to help you have the best possible Disney vacation experience and bring you a little bit of Disney magic wherever you are. With this show, videos, blog, live broadcasts, special events, my Walt Disney World trivia books, CDs, and more, you can find everything over at WDWRadio.com. This week, join me aboard my Walt Disney World Wayback Machine as we journey 20,000 leagues under the sea. We'll look at the attraction's history and virtually board the Nautilus with Captain Nemo and take you scene by scene through Fantasyland's e-ticket attraction, before looking at why it closed for good. We'll then explore what should have taken its place in the location where New Fantasyland and Walt Disney World Magic Kingdom now sits. We're going to examine the imaginary concepts of Atlantis and Fire Mountain, as well as Villains Mountain and Village. It's a fascinating look at what could have been, and we're going to ask for your thoughts on it as well. I'll then have the answer to our last Walt Disney World trivia question of the week, pose a new challenge for your chance to win a Disney prize package. I'll then have a couple of announcements at the end of the show and your voicemails. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. Secure ship for sea. Make all preparations for getting underway. Aye, aye, sir. All hands to stations. Single up all lines. Cast off forward. Cast off aft. Clear the bridge. Clear the bridge. Secure hatches and vents. Stand by engines. All stations manned, sir. Ship break for getting underway. With the opening of New Fantasyland in Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, Ariel's journey under the sea won't be the first time guests will travel under the water for a bit of adventure. In fact, that attraction sits not too far from the original Fantastic Voyage, one that took us all 20,000 leagues under the sea. So this week, we're going to hop aboard my Walt Disney World Wayback Machine and go back in time to explore an attraction that's missed, but certainly not forgotten. 
And joining me is a man whose James Mason impression is as bad as mine. He is Ryan Wilson from the Main Street Gazette. Always ready to be the Mr. Baxter to your captain. (laughs) You know, this is one, Ryan, we have talked about doing for uh, a long, long time. Because I think this is one that hits us for a lot of different reasons. And, you know, to that point, there is this renewed sense of nostalgia in the Disney parks lately, especially at Walt Disney World with the return of the Main Street Electrical Parade and the Orange Bird and Epcot's 30th. And when people talk about their favorite extinct attractions or ones that they wish would return or maybe never saw and wish they could again, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is very, very high on lists that also sometimes include Horizons and Original Journey into Imagination. It is. It's one of the attractions that was so broad of an appeal and it had so much that to, to welcome guests in and it was just a visual spectacular just from looking at it from the queue or from the skyway um, and they started up there I think with Horizons for me it was you know I was thinking this week juggling those two back and forth which one would I really take if I could have one um, and it is for, for me and you it's one of these big ones you know we didn't want to mess it up we, we took our time to get ready for it and um, it's just a fantastic place to, to go visit and for me you know as much as I love the aforementioned horizons, you know, 20,000 leagues for me is one that I have so many personal memories of because my look, my love of Disney stems from and continues to grow from enjoying that place and that experience with my family. Originally as a kid, enjoying it with my mom and dad and now sharing that with my kids and 20,000 leagues was one that, you know, my dad and I especially used to love. And I remember when the ticket booth was across the way and we would be getting ready to leave and I'd be like, come on, like one more e-ticket, let's just grab one more (laughs) e-ticket and hit 20,000 leagues under the sea because, and and as we'll talk about it, this is one I totally, totally bought into. Yes, and you weren't the only one, but it was, it was one of those things for me, you know, I saw the film first before I ever got on the subs and that was part of my family was watching these movies, getting us excited about it. And my dad, who was very claustrophobic, never missed a chance to take me on the on the subs. And so it was it was it was very much a father son kind of thing. And with this whole renewed sense of you know Vernian and steampunk type elements, you know today, this is one of those things that people look at and they're like, why don't we have this again? And the other thing too was as a kid and and as I, I was getting older, it was one that not only was a, a very unique experience because of the ride vehicle and the way you entered, and, but it was, on a scale-wise, it was huge. And because I believe that we were going 20,000 leagues under the sea, that's the first of many bad impressions. Very nice. um, it, it, it was sort of, there was something special about this attraction for me. And even though I would ride the Skyway and look down into the, the sub-lagoon, I still didn't, you know, when I got in there, I believe that we were going somewhere else and it was an ride that seemed to last forever. It seemed to be such a long attraction. Right, and, and it really was not necessarily that long. You know, at just a little under 10 minutes, you could get through the whole thing, but you were going to all these incredible places and, and you're right, I bought into it. I was like, yes, we are we are going, you know, I don't know where. Like this, you know, every time I thought it was going to be something different and whether it was or wasn't, to me it was this incredible, incredible just you know, journey into these books I had read, this movie I had seen, this just whole new world that I had never been a part of. And really the the success of this attraction, and we should sort of talk about the history, was really kind of predicated not just on the movie and bringing this into Walt Disney World, but like a lot of Disney World, goes back to Disneyland and their submarine voyage. 
Right, because you have Disneyland in 1959 with the nuclear subs, which made sense because they were facing, they were putting them in Tomorrowland, um, and you have this great story from Claude Coates that kind of spills over once you get to Florida. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned somebody like Claude Coates. You know, he is one of just many, many, literally legendary Disney Imagineers and future Disney legends who worked on this attraction. And as you go through and, and we'll touch on, I'm sure, especially even early on in the history about how these subs came to be, you know, you're talking about names like uh, a George McGinnis and a Bob Gurr. Right. And you know, even further back, you know, looking at the film, you have Harper Goff touching on you know the elements of the subs and just all these names that, that you know, are really you know household names to people like me and you now who that just uh, you're like, wow, this this really had a who's who list of people working on it. Yeah. And you, you mentioned the subs and, and Harper Goff and his work. And I think that as a kid uh, and even I think to this day, too, and we've seen some of those subs show up here and there. And we'll, we'll talk about that when we talk about what happened and, and mm-hmm. after the, the attraction closed. But they were they were massive. I mean, they were massive subs that were obviously, you know, built and designed by Disney, uh, you know, using designs of George McGinnis and uh, sort of the uh, the direction of Bob Gurr when they were built over in Tampa. Yeah, and it was, it was you know, you had George McGinnis doing these very lavish drawings and, you know, certain things that got left off, even the things that got left off, such as, you know, the uh, they wanted to put the little dinghy boat in the back of the submarine and they had to leave that off, the nose prowl that had to get left off. But still, these were gigantic submarines that to move from Tampa over to Walt Disney World, which, you know, was about a little over an hour drive, you would think today, took them all day long to get there because they had low-laying power lines, they had to get away from overpasses. <laughs> it, would just, it just took all day to get these things moved on flatbed trucks. Right, and remember, so they're, they're 61 feet long. I mean, these are not small ride vehicles. For those of you who, who had never had a chance to ride, I mean, these things were massive. And I think one of the interesting stories that uh, Bob Gurr sometimes tells is about how this process was working, about how these designs were coming really almost on a daily basis over from uh, Imagineering out in California. And they're sort of designing using scale models and, and, and things like that. But in reality, when you get there and you've got this gigantic metal behemoth that they're trying to put together, sometimes numbers don't match up. Uh, things don't fit where they're supposed to. And they're literally kind of just winging it as they're going along just to make sure they get all these pieces together. Right. It was one of these situations where they would call for a certain type of you know, electrical uh, outlet and it actually needed a, a different kind of wiring altogether. Uh, wires were left out that were needed. They were like, shoehorning things in. And for those you know, who, who live in Florida, know Florida, they were doing this on dirt floors at Tampa Ship <laughs> where they would every afternoon have to decide if they were going to get up on scaffolding and stay there all afternoon because it was going to flood. I mean, it was like a wing and a prayer to get anything done with these ships. I'm totally going to borrow AK Steel his term, which is they use the hack and fit method. Yes. <laughs> you know, they would they would make it fit whether it was supposed to or not. They would do whatever they had to do to get it working because they were also on a very tight deadline as well, too. Absolutely. And, and you know, the budgetary constraints, you know, hit back home, you know, like I said, with George McGinnis, they had all these, you know, framed maps and wooden portholes and Belgian carpet runners that they wanted to put in these subs and Come end of the day, it was time and money, and these things couldn't get done. And McGinnis, a lot of McGinnis's, you know, grand ideas had to get, you know, shuffled off. Or in the case of the carpet runners, they got wet, they got nasty, they ripped them out, and they never returned. Yeah, there was a lot of um, 
Bob having to sort of play diplomat peacemaker because he's working with, like you said, so many different industries and there's architects and railroad guys and machine guys and carpet guys because there's sort of multiple elements. There's that the top exterior, which has that um, industrial age, Victorian, Jules Verne-esque look to it, to the functionality of what that hull has got to be, being able to ride on that V elevated track, which is kind of different the than like the Jungle Cruise track. And he's got the interior fit and finish and the operational stuff to to deal with. So there was there's a lot in this vehicle. It's not like putting together uh, and it's a small world, you know, boat. Right. You don't have that. You don't have the the ease of an Omnimover vehicle from you know a Doom buggy. It, this this was very detailed down to the you know, metallic fish scales on the outside to the finishing on the portholes that had to look like wood, but maybe not necessarily be wood, uh, and. To look at it, you know, when it opened, you would have no clue of all the hardships that that Gurr went through to get that done. Yeah, and I think the beauty in the subs themselves, uh, and and as I look up on my shelf, I have three different sort of scale model replicas because mm-hmm. it was a beautiful ride vehicle. I mean, it was it was a beautiful and attraction vehicle, and I think that was part of the appeal too, because as you saw these subs pull up, or as you saw these subs sort of ply through the lagoon, you you know, it, it's very much of a unique shape with that with that big porthole and that um, sort of shark fin almost design up in the front. Yeah, yeah, this it's, it's it's such a visceral experience to see those you know the blue of the lagoon, the the offset green you know rusted kind of hull of the ship with these incredible designs, and then this lavish you know beach volcanic island kind of backdrop, and I you could see why people just fell in love with it immediately. Yeah, and as you would look, you know, the thing was too, you would look at at the lagoon. And you would not see the entire attraction because it no. did go into those caves and it made you kind of wonder, you know, what happens once you get in there? Again, I had believed we went underwater, but that's, that's something completely different. So, you, you and every other you and every other person who went on that I ride. know. I know. That was part of the fun, right? It was, was that suspension yes. of disbelief. But, you know, you talked about some of those uh, challenges in getting the ride vehicles themselves put together. But that was not some of the only problems that they had with this. Look, obviously they knew... This was going to be one of the flagship attractions for the opening of Walt Disney World because of how successful it was out in Disneyland. They realized that they could do more with the Captain Nemo story. It would work better in Fantasyland than it would be in Tomorrowland like it was out there. But with all that planning, with all that preparation, they still were not able to get the attraction ready for opening day. Right. So Bob Gurr has to get his subs out there in, in August but the lagoon itself um, and its ability to hold water, remember, you know, Florida, high water table, delayed the debut of the ride for two weeks. Right. So so everyone who showed up on opening day had this great, you know, view to look at and nothing, you know, nothing doing for, for those first couple of weeks. Uh, they would all have to come back and, and visit with, with the captain another time. Right. So I, I can imagine the, the frustration both on the Disney part and on the guest part on that opening day because you see this beautiful lagoon and there's nothing going on there. But two weeks later, it opens up. There are uh, it opens October October 14th. Again, it is that flagship e-ticket attraction. There are 12 38 diesel powered um, passenger 38 passenger diesel powered subs. Um, there was actually 13 because there was one inside the lagoon as well too. But that lagoon, that that huge lagoon that would be the cause of some problems, had 11 and a half million gallons of water and to put it sort of in context and in perspective of 
old Fantasyland, that was a quarter of all of Fantasyland. Yeah, it was a massive, massive footprint. Um, I mean, it stretched from where you see Pinocchio's village house now all the way to where Little Mermaid is you know, op- now opening in New, in New Fantasyland. I mean, it was just a massive footprint, and it went back. The show building just went back and back and back towards the train track. It, it just it was a huge attraction, and it was such an opening day thing that they, they even had these preview postcards of it with these paintings of the subs in the lagoon to get people excited about it. Yeah, and as massive as it was, original concepts for this actually had it being like three times the size. So, because now you look, you can see Magic Kingdom and New Fantasyland. You see how much more room there was behind where Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea was for them to expand. They had originally planned on using much of that land for it, but again, I think because of of time, because of other issues, the attraction could not be as large as they wanted to be. Um, it really remain the same for the most part for its entire run save for a couple of changes like originally the subs ran on natural gas and then they were converted to diesel engines about maybe nine ten years after it opened but for the most part ryan the you know attractions like this they get it this one actually got very few refurbishments and we'll, we'll talk about that later as, as to maybe what led to its demise but it was an attraction that remained I was I almost said like Country Bear Jamboree, but that just changed. Like Country Bear Jamboree, um, the same when it closed as the day that it opened. It's definitely one of those attractions that stood the test of time. I mean, even today, you could have an attraction like this there, based off of the Vern story, based off of the you know the the movie from 1954. You could you could put, you could plop it in there today, and this the story still would attract the imaginations of guests near and far. And, and I think that's why. There are so many people who would hope that something like this would have returned or could have stayed. Look, they kept the the Finding Nemo, uh, sorry, the, the submarine voyage in Disneyland became Finding Nemo, right? Because they were able to grandfather in certain mm-hmm. things and keep that attraction there. It, it's a beautiful space. It's a great location. I love being able to look at it from uh, riding on one of the monorails in Tomorrowland. But uh, I think there's a lot of reasons why operationally, this attraction had difficulties simply because of being in Florida. Yes, definitely. I mean, you, you do have that, you know, again, the lagoon had problems, um, which gave it some, gave it some, some, uh, problems along the way. You had some, you had some things with the subs that would end up happening, the water table in Florida. Um, and, and in the end, and in the end, uh, we lost something that was truly remarkable. Yeah. And we'll talk about how it ended and, and yeah, how the end didn't seem like it was the end initially, but uh, but let's sort of take people through the attraction itself. Um, you know, as best as we can, sort of in an audio format, being able to take them through what this experience was like, because I think if, if you've never been on it before, it's hard to almost understand what these ride vehicles are like and how they operate and how the story went. So, I mean, let's take them sort of to through these, this, that green covered queue that I remember so mm-hmm. vividly. And when I, I, one thing I remember Ryan and, and, you know, I'm vertically challenged, but I remember looking at <laughs> the, the queue, uh, which had the, the, uh, sort of the, um, that wrought iron metal work, mm-hmm. that green metal that sort of matched the subs and eventually put a covered awning outside, much like they did over at hall of presidents and things like that. But I remember just seeing not the lagoon behind it, but the tree line behind it. And there was that sense of of mystery. Like, you know, when you first see, like, what is this attraction? What, Where is it going to take you? And 
there were things that sort of set the mood. Like I remember some of the music, and of course now, like you said, we, we listen to it all the time. But uh, there was a sense of mystery in the attraction. But the only thing that you saw that gave you a hint, and and I highly recommend going out to pick up the Art of Disney poster art book, was the cool poster that had the sub and and the the, the graphics on it. Yeah, the sub flying through the waterway, and they did a really good job with the reveal of this attraction. You know, there's a lot of these, the rock work went up, and you couldn't really see a whole lot with this gray, you know, ashen, volcanic um, rocks, except for, you know, on, on here, there, on the side, or over the skyway, you got a better view, but it was kind of like, as you got through the queue, you got to see more and more, and for me, I can remember, and I don't know why it stands out so well, there was a water fountain right outside of this queue that was just this sharp, jagged, gray rock with this industrial pipe work coming out of it that you would have had on a submarine for a water fountain. And then you'd wind your way through the queue and you'd have these pipes hanging out over your head with the with turns and knob, knobs and levers and uh, trying to get you prepped for where you were headed. Yeah, and I remember too, um, again, because my iPod consists of nothing but 80s music <laughs> and Disney music, uh, the queue music, right? So you had a lot of nautical theme songs played with things like accordions like whale of a tail or blow the man down a couple of which you actually would sometimes even hear over in uh, liberty square and then there was that cue narration and that was the the pete renaday narration and and i interviewed pete renaday about this attraction from the others i'll put a link in the show notes um, because it's fascinating to hear him tell his version of creating captain nemo but uh it was a very james mason-esque but mysterious kind of thing. Like, I remember that, you know, how old was the Earth? Again, bad impression, I, forgive me, but uh, that's how I continue to hear it in my head. How old is the Earth? How was it formed? These and other questions about our watery planet have intrigued man since the beginning of time. No, and I still hear it in my head, too. And you, and you do, you get this, this just very kind of fatherly, but very kind of eerie voice that's guiding you into, the, you know, talking about the history of the earth, the history of the ocean, the you know all these different pieces, and that carries into the attraction where he is your guide through the through the Nautilus sub. And it's funny because if you listen to the cue narration, he there are so many different things that he talks on. He talks about you know primitive man and how primitive men use the oceans and how uh, the continents are being formed and this very sort of living dynamic. If man is to reap the bounty of the deep. He must learn all he can about the ocean and its contents. To this end, our marine laboratories at Vulcania are stepping up their research capabilities. The sophisticated diving methods and saturation diving techniques of the Nautilus have dramatically increased the time man can live comfortably and for long periods in the ocean depths. It seems safe to assume that one day, future generations will be released from their terrestrial bonds and achieve absolute freedom in liquid space. Word. He talks about, he talks about aliens, right? He talks about, he you know, says if yes. there's intelligent beings in, from other planets, they might look at Earth differently. They might call it Oceanus because of the fact that it's covered by 70% in water. I mean, really, just, I think it was really well-written, very interesting. Uh, it, it, it didn't necessarily foreshadow what you were going to see, but it really was more of an, an entertaining, almost educational kind of. I would say yeah. it was a thinking man's cue, as as it were. You have <laughs> you have these questions that you you could walk away, you know, thinking, wow, yeah, what would people, what would other life forms think of 
of this planet if they saw us today? What would they look at? And then you get on the sub and you totally forget everything that he just told you. Right. And, it, and you know, look, he talks about things like uh, harvesting the oceans for food and minerals and energy. He's talking about things like antibiotics in, in ocean organisms. Modern man's most compelling interest in the ocean lies in its great potential for renewable resources. Not only of protein-rich food, but also in the wealth of minerals, energy, and drugs. Our recent explorations have revealed vast deposits of minerals that can be mined. At Volcania, we have tapped the ebb and flow of the tides to produce clean and efficient electric power. One of the most promising areas of investigation is in the field of marine biomedicine. We're discovering many antibiotics and other useful drugs in ocean organisms. There are many, many other potentialities to be found in the Earth's last frontier. But we must always keep in mind that the bounty of the sea is not limitless. Man must be prudent in his exploration and utilization of this last great storehouse of natural wealth. And I think this, Ryan, is an important time to mention that Disney made a, a, a deliberate choice here because they also, look, if you watch 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, the Nemo on the submarines in the Magic Kingdom is different than the Nemo there. You know, the, the Nemo in the movie was not the warm, fuzzy, grandfatherly no. kind of guy. Uh, so this is, is painting the picture of Nemo differently as the second you get in the queue and maybe sort of erasing that image of Nemo that you may remember from the film. Right, the, the, this classic anti-hero that you have in Nemo in the in the book and in the movie, uh, you, you do kind of tend to, to wash away with this thought process and this you know betterment of man, the the history of mankind kind of element, what the oceans have to offer, was a, was actually a very pivotal thing to Disney in that era. You can think about it again with Horizons. This was another thing where they went back to people and said, "What would the oceans hold for us now?" And they they took it up a notch and and put it into Horizons. So it's 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 an it's an ever changing message, but at the same time, they wanted you know they wanted this James Mason, Pete Renaday, uh, Nemo to just kind of shine and and impart this information. Yeah, and he really gets you ready for you know when you finally do wind through that queue and you get to that loading dock area. I, I I can see it in my mind so vividly as a kid, and I could imagine if I could see it again now, it's that oh, wow, kind of thing. Because you don't just sort of slide into a, a uh, an attraction vehicle. You don't sit down into a boat. You see guests exiting mm-hmm. from a giant sort of round porthole on the forward part of the submarine, and you go down one of two very steep stairs in, yes. uh, into the submarine in the aft. And it's very, you know, like you said, it's got that steampunky, riveted encrusted kind of thing i mean it's an awesome kind of experience just getting into the vehicle yeah and i can remember you know vividly that that whirring sound you know the whirling sound of that portal opening up and you, you had the uh, uh cast members dress, dressed up as sailors who were helping people on and helping people off the boats and uh d- d- you're descending into this, and really, I mean, it's very dark and it's very steep getting into there uh, to find to find your seat, and then you're walking down these long rows to find a seat where you would pull it down and then sit down and look out a porthole right in front of you. Yeah, so you have to imagine walking down uh, this staircase in a porthole um, on a very very steep angle. When you got into the submarine and looked forward towards where the helmsman would be, 
you would find um, a, a long bench in the middle that had rows facing outward. And there were these beautiful sort of Victorian-esque red leather flip-down mm-hmm. seats that would let you sit down and lean forward. And you had your own probably about one foot in um, in diameter porthole. So the experience for you was very individual. It was very personal. It wasn't like being on a doom buggy or Buzz Lightyear. This experience was for you and you alone because you were experiencing it looking through your own kind of looking glass and, and as though the captain uh, and, and Mr. Baxter were speaking directly to you. Absolutely. And it was one of those things where I almost preferred the seats towards the aft end of the submarine because you would hear the narration. They would tell you what, what you're seeing, but it wasn't quite there yet. So you had this anticipation of, you know, what is this that's coming around the corner? What, what am I going to see out this porthole next? And the cool thing was from the second you sat down, well, even before then, you know, the experience begins. The, the ride experience begins before the attract, before that porthole closes and you're, you're on your way because you sit down in your seat and you're in this great environment. Again, claustrophobic, <laughs> you know, to a certain degree for some people. Yes. But you would sit down and because you were under the water level, you were immediately able to look out, right? And you would look out and the first thing you'd always do is look up and you could see the water line there. And then when the lights would dim, right, you had this very sort of dimly lit cabin. It was awesome at night. Uh, I loved running 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea uh, at night. But it really sort of gave you a very realistic type. Not that I've ever been in a submarine, but I would have to imagine if it was it was a realistic type experience that way. Absolutely. And there were, and you also had, and we'd be remiss if we didn't mention it, you have you know, Captain Nemo playing his pipe organ music as you're making your way to your seats and as you're, you're getting ready to get underway. And it's just that haunting melody of, of this pipe organ that just really sent, could send shivers down your spine but set the scene. And the great thing about the way the water worked with the subs is that even though you were in this lagoon and the the walls could be, you know, 10 feet away as you start getting underway, the way the light diffused through the water, you really had a hard time making out that wall. And it just seemed like the ocean just went on forever out in front of you. Yeah, there was a, a great use of forced perspective under the water mm-hmm. uh, as well, too. Those, those backdrops that were very close seemed that they were very far away. And with like you said, the movement of the water and the sea life, you very much bought into it, you know? Um, Just like, and speaking of buying into it, I, as a kid, I bought into this experience. I sat down, I saw the helmsman at the front, they closed the porthole, and, you know, Captain Nemo said, Secure ship for sea. Make all preparations for getting underway. Aye, aye, sir. All hands to stations. Single up all lines. Cast off forward. Cast off aft. Clear the bridge. Clear the bridge. Secure hatches and vents. Stand by engines. And when you're looking at your porthole, and I can see, I can hear those bubbles, which I didn't realize were generated by a machine, uh, you know, either on, on the floor coming up the sides, I felt as though we were going deeper underwater. Right? It's the hydrolator trick. 
Yes, it's the hydrolyzer. Yeah, and and we the same the same problem that the hydrolyzers had. You had people complaining, you know, to get services about this decompression <laughs> sickness that they had come up, they had surfaced too quickly, and now they were sick, uh, even though you were never actually totally under the water. But you're right. I bought in. You know, you, you left these docks where they had the barnacles and starfish encrusted on them, and uh, the boats are coming up, and you have, you know, this is your captain speaking, <laughs> and and I was like, yes, sir. Like I, whatever you got me to do, I'm on there. Right, and he gave you a, a sense of what was to come, right? He said, you know, we're going on a course that's going to take us 20,000 leagues under the sea. <laughs> you're going to go below the polar ice caps and probe depths seldom seen by man. And you're like, oh, my God, this is awesome. Yeah, you're like, you, you, and if you weren't bought in by that point, you, it was, you know, there was nobody, there was nothing else to sell you because it was, you were ready to go. And, and he was going to take you through this and... Um, it's just, I, I wish I could, I wish we, you know, there was a way to show people now because it was, it was just so immersive in every way imaginable that you were, you were on your way. All ahead one third. All ahead one third. Aye, aye. Stand by to dive. Diving stations. Dive. Dive. Take her down easy. Aye, aye. Trim bow diving plates. Three degrees down. Catch her at ten fathoms. And the other thing, too, and if you go through and you listen to or you read the script, um, understand what I, what I mean by this. It was an attraction that was not dumbed down. It was not yep. written for five-year-olds because he talks about things like his, you know, his, the, soul, the, the, um, the sonar hydrophone. Right, hearing the fish talk. The fish world has always been considered a silent habitat. But now, thanks to remarkable advances in marine technology, we can use instruments such as our sonar hydrophones to actually hear the fish talk. Right, and he talks about, uh, you know, harvesting the kelp beds and all the different things that do. And it was a very sort of scientific thing as well, too. But all along the way, you're seeing the sea life and those moray eels and the divers who were in those sort of uh, antique, you know, diving suits, um, you know, cultivating the, the seabeds. Right. And you have, you know, and the, then you get into the history of ancient civilizations and you know, the, how, how they rose and fall and mythology and all these elements, and you're right. They, they didn't dumb, they didn't talk it down. They didn't dumb it down for anyone. You know, you you either got it or you didn't, and you learned as you went through this attraction whether you realized it or not. It was living with the land, but underwater. <laughs> <laughs> Let's try singing that song in Jim Mason voice and see what happens. Among these coral reefs, you'll see various species of marine life feeding among the seaweed and unusual rock formations. There are lobsters, crabs, sea turtles. These reptilian patriarchs of the deep are the amphibious descendants of the dinosaur and have changed little in the past 200 million years. Roaming the coastal sea bottoms in search of food are the groupers or giant sea bass. And speaking of giants, the giant clam has a fluted shell that can weigh up to a quarter of a ton. As you're going through, Nemo is taking you to farther and farther deeper waters right he takes another eight degree de degrees down you see i remember seeing um the shark but one of the things and i'm right. sure you probably remember that um 
the, all the, the the graveyard of, sh- the of graveyard sunken of ships. ships. Yeah. Submarines can dive safely below the violence of surface storms. Other craft have not been so fortunate. Witness the evidence of their fate. The graveyard of lost ships. Stronghold of sunken treasure. How many attempts have been made to claim the treasure that lies hidden in these rotting holds? A fortune in gold and jewels safeguarded by these man-eating sharks and other silent sentinels of the deep. Yeah, you have the sharks swimming around, and you know that was one of those animals that was on a tethered cable that was swimming around, but you couldn't real you didn't realize it. It was looking like it was just swimming through all these mass of these wrecked ships, and you know, to get an idea of what that looked like, you know, it's the scene of the Little Mermaid where all the ships are wrecked down there and all the sharks are there. That's kind of what you had in that scene. Uh, and and if you, you know, you keep going further to, further down to you know uh, there are limits to which you know even man cannot survive. And then you get these, you know, eerie-looking monster fish kind of creatures. Here in this realm of eternal darkness, nature has provided her creatures with their own eerie luminescence. Warning light, sir. We've reached maximum depth limit. Ease her back up to 80 fathoms. Eight zero fathoms, aye. Right, and it and what you see and what you hear lets you suspend your disbelief, right? Because he talks about going to the polar ice caps. And it seems to get darker. And all of a sudden you see these pieces of glaciers coming into view. And there's that sort of aurora borealis and that Viking ship. And that the sound of the sonar is resonating inside and sort of pinging inside the uh, inside the sub. You forget that it's 137 degrees outside in Florida. You think <laughs> you are, you know, hundreds of feet underwater where the polar ice caps are. Absolutely. You get that sound of like the ice like straining and crushing on the hull and it's like right we need to either get deeper or get out because something's going wrong here and there was there's a few moments where i remember it got sort of eerily quiet right as if there you're so far below the, the ocean that there's nothing to hear you just sort of it's what you see outside and then all of a sudden it's interrupted by the sound of you know, the, the sonar pings or Captain Nemo saying, all right, we got to go. We have to go even farther down to 80 fathoms. And my favorite part of this was seeing the remains of what looks like an ancient civilization and what he talks on to guess may be the lost continent of Atlantis. Unusual formation to port and starboard, sir. Aha. These crumbling heaps of stone betray the hand of man. These classic ruins could very well be the legendary lost continent of Atlantis. For centuries, scholars have debated its existence. Some believe that ages ago, a magnificent island was destroyed by a tremendous volcano. Captain, it's an underwater volcano. This confirms it. That seething mountain still denies rest the civilization it destroyed thousands of generations ago. Right, that had been submerged, and you have these incredible columns and you know, these statuesque faces that have just crumbled, and it's just, it, it looks like you would, you know, like you would think an ancient civilization would look like it, you know, everything you've learned from Roman and Greek mythology, it's that kind of a civilization that has just been sunk, and, you know, and he's talking about uh, how it was, you know, there were volcanoes that had, that had buried this civilization, uh, you know, and that some of the you know about mermaids and sea serpents, and that's when you get that great you know whimsical turn, where you know you get Mr. Baxter talking about 
you know, memories and seasons are just fantasy, and you're seeing out your portholes, but Nemo is not buying any of it. Yeah, and what I liked about this was, look, I, I am somebody who is fascinated by ancient cultures, ancient mm-hmm. technologies, and, and and things like the Mayans and uh, the, the lost continent of Atlantis. And what he does is he sort of takes you from the idea of reality into that world of fantasy. You slowly make that transition from real submerged ancient civilizations to this fantastical mythological world of Atlantis into now, like you said, sea serpents and mermaids. And now all of a sudden you haven't been submerged too long like he says you are, but you you were you sort of get the you sort of get the result of what he is alluding to when you see that giant green, you know, sea serpent uh, and the mermaids. There are legends told by ancient mariners of ships being crushed into splinters by the powerful tentacles of giant squid. But of course, these stories have no basis in fact. They're merely tall tales that should be classed as fiction along with the myths of m- mermaids? I don't believe it. Uh, Mr. Baxter, check the air pressure. Green board, sir. Mermaids and sunken treasure. Something is causing these hallucinations. Or can it really be possible? Nah. Right, and it's and it's one of those slow reveals too. You start with a little tail, and it gets and it starts winding its way up, and then you see the mermaids with basically this sea serpent on a leash. But and this is why it fit perfectly into Fantasyland because there is that element of storybook fantasy of you know suspend your disbelief, you know fiction, and uh, and it's kind of a laughable you know throw off moment. But uh, but Nemo still is very grounded in science because he you know in you know in a very quick shift. Then we're back to the volcano that had sunk this civilization before. Right. You you forget about the treasure and the gold coins and all the things, all the beautiful. And, and again, I think they were done so very well. Everything yes. from the architecture and, and those walls and the remains of the buildings and the statue of, you know, what could have been Poseidon or whoever it was right. into as it, things are wont to do in Disney attractions. Something goes horribly wrong. And that that volcano that you know, brought Atlantis here, now maybe erupting again. Right. And and, you know, it's okay, time to go through another bubble screen. You know, let's get let's get out of Dodge kind of a situation because things are, are horribly awry and everything you know, the water has turned red. Uh you could see this volcano fuming in the background. And, you know, as things like you said are tend to do in, in attractions, they go from bad to worse. <laughs> right. Because now now, you know, one of the other uh Nautiluses are being uh, attacked by a giant octopus. Right, and I remember him going, good Lord, it's one of ours. Its hull has been crushed like an eggplant. And that's the reason, I'm so sorry. (laughs) But but that's where you see sub number 13, and it's a replica of the sub that you're in. Right, right. And actually, if we're being fair, there actually were two of them because each side had to have a duplicate uh, show scene so there's actually two of those subs sitting out over oh, there. That's right. There you go. And uh, it, you know, and then and then it, the another squid shows up and it's going to attack us and he's you know full repellent charge. Captain, a gi- giant squid dead ahead. Stand by, repellent charge. Steady as she goes. Our submarine is equipped with a high voltage electrical shield that would discourage even the most aggressive predator. 
There are legends told by ancient mariners of ships being crushed into splinters by the powerful tentacles of giant squid. But, of course, these stories have no basis in fact. They're merely tall tales that should be classed as fiction, along with the myths of m mermaids? I don't believe it. Right, which, and if you watch the film, like, you're seeing things that, or experiencing things that you saw in the film, which I think was really neat how they tied it, not just to the experience, but to the original film itself. Right, there was enough there, you know, with the harvesting, with this, the squid attack and the full repellent charge, that, you know, it was something that you knew, and then there was that, those uh, added to pieces, these things that you hadn't experienced with the movie, with Atlantis, with the polar ice caps, that were just extraordinary. So you get this nice mix of, you know, known and unknown in the same story. Yeah, and, you know, you go back to Volcania, and, and he thanks you for uh, understatement of the year, a memorable voyage. <laughs> um, but, you know, it was one of those things, and it didn't exit you out into a gift shop. <laughs> right. Um, but it, it was, you know, I think about this as we're talking about it, and, and other sort of uh, personal memories are, are coming back of writing this. This is why I think this was one of those things that had such a huge rewritability factor to it too oh absolutely i mean i can't think of the number of times that it, i don't care how long the line was i was like yeah just let's go again let's just go right back you know get out of the hinged metal gate and get right back in the line yeah and you know i i think the attraction uh, i always remember it being uh very popular right i remember yes. standing online for a long time and i think that was part of partly due to its appeal I think it was partly due to some of the issues that the attraction had because uh, it really didn't, like I said, it really didn't go through a lot of renovations from time to time. Eventually, you know, you would see it where they would drain the lagoon and they would clean it and fix over there. But in September 1994, September 5th to be exact, it closed, and I'm using air quotes as if you could see me, it closed temporarily for renovations. Right, right. It was one. Of, it was one of the first seasonal status kind of things that happened. Yeah, and you know, seasonal is the death knell. <laughs> you, if you see seasonal, unless you're Carousel of Progress, which was like the cat with nine lives. Yes. Um, chances are, things are about to go even more horribly awry, Captain Nemo. Right, um, your squid's coming very, very soon. <laughs> the squid is coming. The volcano's erupting. You can't find a corporate sponsor to help defray these costs. Whatever it may be, it closes temporarily and never reopens. Right. So you don't have a uh, a Mr. Toad's wild ride situation where people are camping out and there are toad ins and wearing green shirts that said, you know, Mickey killed toad or Eisner killed toad or whoever it may be. Uh, this was okay. It's eventually going to reopen from renovations and it doesn't. It just sort of quietly drifts off. Um, and it takes about two years before they say, all right, it's it's official. It's not coming back. Right, we're not we're we're not bringing this back. And you did have these you know these rumors that they had somebody come look at it, that there were you know that some of the cast members put the worst stuff they had because it took so many cast members to run this attraction, it took so much uh, overhead to get it going that they just wanted it. they wanted a, a reason to be done with it. You know whether that's true or not, it was you know it, it did just kind of have this silent you know almost this silent death of slow death of. It's here, it's here, it's here, it's here. Well, maybe it's not actually here. Yeah, you know, I'd heard the um, the legend, and I'm using air quotes yes. again, yeah. of the Michael yeah. Ovitz uh, visit to the park. Right. And, and basically what it, what was happening was they were telling Michael Ovitz that the attraction was beyond repair. Uh, it was going to cost too much. It was costing to maintain. He says, look, I want to ride it myself. I, I want to do this myself. He says, all right, come back tomorrow, and we'll have it ready for you. 
And the, the, the way the, the rumor slash legend is, is that the cast members who did not like the diesel fumes, those oh-so-attractive nautical costumes, whatever it may be, brought out the worst sub with engine problems, and they gave him a really rough ride. So he was destined to come off of it and say, forget it, this is beyond repair. Um, Ryan, whether that's true or not, I, I don't know. Um, yeah. I, I'm not going to say that that is the reason why the attraction closed. No. Because no. there are a, there are a lot of legitimate business reasons uh, and safety reasons why I think the attraction closed, right? And just to hit a couple of them, first and foremost, it was a very costly attraction to operate and maintain. Taking uh, taking apart the, the what it costs to, to operate on a daily basis, just to maintain the subs, the lagoon, the, the water itself was very, very expensive and very difficult too. Right, even after they put a closed filter system in for the water clarity, it was just incredibly time-consuming for the number of you know cast members you needed to operate an attraction of that level. You know, not to mention the subs were not uh, handicap accessible. You know, we talked about how the stairway was very steep and went in. There wasn't a way to get you know wheelchair guests in there. Um, there, there, there were so many reasons why this attraction you know did or did not you know didn't you know, make it beyond 94. Right. I mean, the, the lagoon itself, unlike the one in California, right? Because there you're not dealing with a high water table. You're not right. you're dealing with a different type of climate there. So here you had a lagoon that literally was leaking, right? It was leaking water from uh, the, the, the swamp land around it. Uh, there was algae at the bottom of the lagoon. They had to keep it so heavily chlorinated. The chlorine ate the paint off the subs. So they were repainting it all the time. There were a lot of issues with that, uh, I remember sometimes the subs being incredibly hot inside uh, because it probably, you know, was was not always easiest to keep those uh, subs cool. And I think, too, operationally, Ryan, those long lines weren't necessarily because it was the most popular attraction in the park, but it was very slow loading. It had a very slow, very low throughput, right, because it had a limited capacity, only had 38 seats inside. So it's not like a universe of energy or some of these other attractions where you're fitting in hundreds of people at a time, it was, it took a very long time to load in and load out and slow load times does not from a business perspective, you know, that does not help your park operations. No, especially when you can only load, you know, so like you said, you know, 30 people at a time into one sub, the egress time and, you know, getting people in, um, you have, you know, you you, uh, you know inside the attraction, the, these tethered some of the tethered you know sea creatures would gain you know just fungus and algae and all these things hanging off their cores, and you know that would kind of take away from the show scenes. And um, I agree, I think it had a massive line, but I'm not necessarily that not sure. You know, as much as we all loved it, if that was why we had long lines, I think it was part of it. I think the other part was you, know, you could only load you know two subs at a time, and it took quite a while to get through that process. And, you know, for a 10 minute ride, you know, nowadays stuff like that, you know, you see Soren, they have two bays full, you know, full of capacity with, you know, going five minutes, every five minutes, right. click, click, click. Uh, this didn't have that luxury. Right. And look, if you go to Finding Nemo out in Tomorrowland and Disneyland, their submarine voyage still uh, has some of those same issues as far as load time. But again, in order to keep it grandfathered in so it wouldn't have to comply with the American with Disabilities Act. They left the vehicles there. They left the sub there. And an attraction, I think, is beautiful and it's fun and they've got some great use of technology there. Uh, but I think that was 
especially without a corporate sponsor, was impossible to do here. And I think we finally, as uh, Disney fans were paying very close attention, we really realized that the subs weren't coming back when we saw pieces of them up for sale on eBay. <laughs> and that's and it's yes. literally, I mean, that's what was happening. Yeah, when you start seeing pizzas from the show scenes, you know, I know that you, you could still find seaweed occasionally on there. But when it started happening there, you kind of realize, oh, okay, this isn't going to happen. The sign eventually finally did come down because they did reuse the queue uh, for the Finishing Character Festival. Uh, you realized, oh, okay, the, the subs aren't coming back. And then they then they put the statue of Ariel out there so that it made it like Ariel's Grotto instead of, you know, ne- Nemo's Volcania. Yeah, the, they were using it for the character meet and greet for the Fantasyland Character Festival. Uh, you did start seeing Pooh coming over and, and starting to uh, lay his claim to that area as well for what was eventually going to be Pooh's playful spot in 2005. Quickly going back to the eBay items, uh, I can tell you that um, somebody had actually given me uh, one of the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea portholes. And I can tell you, Ryan Wilson... It is one of my prized pieces in my Disney collection, right? Because it is one of those things that is not mass produced. There are only so many of them, and it came from an attraction, right? It came out of the park. It came out of that water. It came from something that I loved and have such great memories of being on there with my dad and just like laughing about. And when I got it, I was like, this is so cool. I'm going to hang it on my wall. I'm going to make a table out of it. It's still sitting in my garage, but that does not <laughs> remove any of the love that I have for my portal. I was saying, it's, it's one of those portholes that you or I could have sat at. I mean, you, you have these ideas of, yes, I sat at this porthole once upon a time um, because probably we've sat in every seat on both of those, on all those subs at once upon a time. Um, but you do, you have this, and if you need a place to display it, you know, I'd be happy to put it up, you know, nice, you know, safe place in my wall uh, for right now. I know uh, what I would like to do with it, but time, talent, and finances are what is preventing me, and I just don't have the wall space, but I would yeah. love to somehow mount it to my wall, Yeah, but you'd be able to look into the sub, into the porthole, and watch a video of the attraction, like oh, that first-person yeah. perspective. That would be, that's a lot of fun. Yeah. Honey. I'm going to have to just, I'm going to have to just raid the garage <laughs> one of these days, and you're going to come back and be like, well, so I don't know, but let me show you what I have in my office. <laughs> So I'm once again grateful for a very understanding wife. Um, <laughs> and if anybody else has one of those portals out there they need to get rid of, I, I would happily take it off your hands. Yeah, but you know what's cool is that you know we know that so many of the people at Disney and specifically at Imagineering are like us. They are fans first. They are nostalgics first. We see so many tributes throughout the parks to other attractions like Mr. Toad. And the same holds true for 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Not just in Walt Disney World, but outside as well, too. Because while Disney did get rid of the subs and they did sell them for scrap, they also were cognizant enough to make sure they kept some for other purposes, right? So one of them, if you've ever been to Castaway Key, they actually submerged one of the submarines. You could actually go out and snorkel uh, over to it. I did it when we were on the WWE cruise last year with a couple of buddies, and I stood on top of that submarine, and I was like, this is awesome, <laughs> because it, you know, you remember what it was like, and now you see that sub in the water. I know they'd also taken one, and they had it over at uh, Disney MGM Studios. Mm-hmm. Uh, every now and then, you still see one backstage in Epcot, because they yeah. 
You can do it for special events. You've seen them come out in special events. Yeah, I've seen that some of the, the Florida events and stuff like that. But yeah, they had it in the water effects tank over at Disney and Yum Studios with the backlot tour for like set dressing. Um, you know, and then, you know, there's there's also those those photos of the ones that got buried that just, you know, make make my heart break and I'm sure yours too. Right, but as if we would go out and buy the sub, like what would we do with it? Yeah, yeah, exa- yeah. Our wives would kill we us. We just bought a sixty-foot iron submarine, honey. Um, I gonna say, I gonna say, Horizon's <laughs> ride vehicle is enough to, to you know be grounds for divorce in, in our household. I know your wife as well as mine, but if we came home with a sub, you know, me and you, we bought a sub. No, we, we bought it. What are we gonna do with it? It's gonna be our treehouse. I don't know. <laughs> Listen, if something goes wrong and our wives finally, you know, wives, wife wise and up and ditch us if you and i were roommates we would have the coolest bachelor pad ever ever <laughs> we wouldn't date very much but we would have really cool toys in our in our house yeah to keep our keep our, our free time occupied uh one of my favorite tributes though and one that i love showing to people and i know you know where this is uh because this is one that most people i think don't know about or don't go see simply because of where it is so when the Fantasyland Character Festival went away, eventually they filled in that lagoon space with dirt. And I think that served a couple of purposes, right? They had to let that ground settle, right? They right. had to let that dirt settle because they knew eventually they may be having something else coming there. And we'll talk about what else may have been there. Obviously, now it's new Fantasyland. And when it became Pooh's playful spot, there was the tree that would sort of uh, acted as a centerpiece. That right. tree has now been moved across the way out in front of the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh. But when that tree was there, and it's still there now, inside the tree, where most adults like us don't go, um, <laughs> unless we're going to take pictures, uh, is an awesome tribute to 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Right, you have that little knot of wood that frames itself out to be one of the Nautilus. And uh, I can remember climbing in when it was still Pooh's playful spot over there, very early in the morning, so there weren't you know kids all over the place, and I wasn't interfering with their playtime. Uh, climbing in there on my back to get a good photo of this, and my dad looked at me and just kept on walking because he wanted nothing to do with the crazy man hiding in the tree. <laughs> well, I, I love it because no kid will ever see it, right? You really no. sort of know need to know where it is in <clears throat> in order to find it. And when you find it, and when you recognize it, and it clicks, you're like, oh, you can see the yeah. outline of the sub. And it still has that sort of patina green yes. that those subs had. Yes, and it, it is it's one of those little details. You know, kids, they aren't going to recognize that as one of the subs. You know, it, it, you would have to be somebody like me or you or somebody listening to this who, who really remembers that and really loves it so much to go and search for it. Because, uh, it's, it's, again, it's not, on an, it's not easy to find. It's not you know, easy to get to. I was on my back trying to get photos of it. Yeah, so, and to to try and make it easy for people, uh, if you walk into the treehouse, not using the little door out front that says ring also, but from the side door uh, where little guys like me can still not have to bend down, when you walk through that doorway, if you immediately turn around and look over the arch of the door, look carefully and you'll be able to find the submarine there. Or join me for a citrus swirl and I'll take you to go see it. There you go. (laughs) So, any excuse to have we a could, citrus swirl. We could we could have a citrus swirl and just do a whole walkthrough of New Fantasyland talking about Toy the other leagues under the sea at this point. We may just have to next time you come down. <laughs> there we go. So the end of 20,000 Leagues, though, wasn't necessarily going to be the end because even going back uh, to that time in 1994, 
there were so many rumors, and we're going back to, you know, Usenet news groups and places where you got right. your Disney information or, or talking to other people, but there were a lot of rumors of what they were going to do with that space and what they were going to do, I think, with this concept of using this Jules Verne steampunkish industrial type era as the basis for another attraction. And this actually goes back to back to Tony Baxter, who had uh, ideas for similar attractions for Discovery Bay out in Disneyland. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you had you had all these incredible ideas of things that that could be coming. They wanted to keep this this Vernian theme to it. Um and they were trying to find different ways of of tweaking that concept in order to keep it there in uh, in Fantasyland. And there was something, you know, timing is everything. And there was something coming for Walt Disney Feature Animation, which was going to fit into that perfectly. It had explorers and subs and squids and volcanoes and civilizations like Atlantis. And the film was called Brumchik. It was Atlantis. <laughs> Yeah, the Lost Empire. Uh, and the subs, you know, were, while not identical, very reminiscent of those subs from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Uh, and this you know, this was going to be their big blockbuster film, and they had all these ideas of what they were going to build with it. And then the film came out, and it sunk like a sub. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, maybe it didn't sink. Right, but, but you know, the, the in theory, it had some great elements to it, including mm-hmm. the the important part was this volcano, right? right? Because now from a design perspective, you've got a way to add another visual weenie, that visual draw into Fantasyland, another mountain to add with this giant smoking volcano. And so right. one of the instead concepts, of, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was say, yeah, instead of building down, we were going to start building up and right there at the corner of, you know, Tomorrowland and, and Fantasyland, you were going to have this other, this, you know, draw in. Right. And so the, the idea being this gives us an opportunity to create another type of attraction a little bit more thrill based. Right. And we're, we're taking cues from things like Tower of Terror, which to a certain degree is multiple ride experiences in one. Right. You walk through the queue, which sets the story. You get in that elevator and you slowly move up. And that is sort of one part of the experience. And then the drop is a second part. Well, they wanted to do the same thing here. They were going to have a coaster-like experience where it would transform halfway through from a traditional roller coaster experience to possibly a, a hanging roller coaster experience. And the beauty of it was you had this giant mountain to do it in, and the concept was going to be called Fire Mountain. That's what this um, this roller coaster, this transformative roller coaster experience was going to be was something called Fire Mountain. But while at the same time that's under development, there's another team at WDI working on another concept for a mountain as well, too. Right. You have – they still wanted to use a mountain. Uh, there was this idea of turning part of Fantasyland into you know, the villains area where you'd have villains hangouts, where the, you know, where the villains had their lairs. And this mountain where you would go in and you'd have all these different concepts and you'd have a boat and very similar to kind of the Splash Mountain – You'd see them planning, you know, plotting their big, uh, you know, mastermind, I'm going to take over whatever world uh, scene, and then you'd end with a being spit out of this mountain flume kind of ride. 
Right. So you've got two different concepts. And what, what I liked about Villains Mountain was, especially at that time, and even now, Ryan, you know, too, we've heard about this fifth Villains theme park that's been rumored or, or right. wished for by people. But the villains are so popular from consumer products to films to TV shows, whatever it is. And Villains Mountain would have been the centerpiece for what probably would have been akin to a new fantasy land type expansion, right? So this would have been located uh, close to Pinocchio Village House, but there would have been, you know, cobblestone streets and mm-hmm. shops and restaurants uh, based solely on all these villains, right? So you've got all these different characters that could come in there and then surrounded by uh, or surrounding this uh, villain's mountain. Uh, originally, they were thinking sort of a knight on bald mountain kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But what they eventually feel is that, you know, a villain's mountain is something that people could more relate to. It's more attractive to people because of the popularity. And think about the character experiences that you would be able to bring into there as well, too. Oh, it's incredible. I mean, not only just the walk around characters, but you could have, you know, Street Mystery characters you know, doing their little villain shtick on the corner. Uh, you know, selling their wares or, you know, their potions. And the ideas here are incredible. And, you know, we, we, we have a piece of that kind of with the new Faceland with Gaston's Tavern now. Um, but the whole area would have just had this, you know, it would have felt like night. You know, I don't care, high noon, the way that, you know, the buildings would have kind of curved towards in and there would have been more shadow play. Um, it would have been an incredible scene to behold. Right. So you have now these two very different but very spectacular possible experiences and the idea was well now which one do we choose right do you choose this atlantis themed fire mountain or do you go with this villain villains mountain or do you do both right so eisner's mate now saying well maybe all of a sudden we don't need to pick one or the other maybe atlantis doesn't fit into fantasy land and you know being close to mickey's toontown fair all that well maybe this volcano works out well over in adventureland Right. So you put Fire Mountain over there as well, too. You've got this idea of Atlantis and adventure. And then you have Villains Mountain come later on where the old 20,000 Leagues is. So there was actually rumors in, you know, in 2000 that Fire Mountain was going to get built in Adventureland. Mm-hmm. And then four years later, Villains Mountain was going to follow. Yeah, there was, I mean, there were, this were the, these were the plans. This is what everyone knew was going to happen. Um, kind of like when World Showcase opened, you know, we knew we were getting these countries that had billboards. Um, and whether it's too many cooks in the kitchen or, you know, the funds or maybe Atlantis had run its course at that point. They just, they just felt like it wasn't as identifiable anymore. Uh, we end up with neither mountain. And we end up with new – we end up with event, what eventually becomes now is new fantasy land, very right. different – but a seven dwarfs mine coaster. So we still get we're getting a mountain. We're getting but a, very, yes, we're right, getting, very different than the the villains or the fire mountain. Yes, we yes instead of instead of scary we get you know you know happy grumpy dopey. So if you let me ask you this if you were Imagineer for the day and I said all right Ryan you got to pick one do you go fire mountain or do you go villains mountain or, or villains land as it were? I think I'm Imagineer for a day and I get my my uh, druthers, I'm going to take the concept of villain, Mount, villain mountain with these, you know, villains peppering the landscape, but use the tools of fire mountain with this transforming coaster aspect that I think would work so much better in that, in that area. Yeah. I mean, I think villain, as much as I love fire mountain, this idea of yeah. this villains 
village. And look, put yourself in, you know, put the suit on, look at it from a business perspective. Yep. You know, you think villains, you think merchandising. Uh, you know, think about the opportunities for what you could do from, you know, the the uh, uh, character, having the characters there mm-hmm. to soft line goods. There's a lot that you would be able to do and expand Character this. meals. And yeah. I mean, you see the villains already at, you know, in downtown Disney in the shops or at the studios on Sunset. They, they they clearly have a dedicated fan base, and you know we're right there with them. You know, you, you, for every good hero, there's a great villain. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it would have to be funny, not scary. Because <laughs> yes. I remember yes. being at, at Grand Floridian once, and there was a. Uh, um, I remember, I think it was Captain Hook came came over, and he was you know he was scary Captain Hook. But you could have a lot of fun, I think, with the villains mountain concept. Uh, so what I want to do, Ryan, is I want to leave people with. Not one, but two questions, right? If you had to choose between Fire Mountain and Villains Mountain, and again, we don't really have any concept art to share, which one would you like to? But more importantly, let's take it back to 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I would love people to share their memories of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Uh, If they went there as a child, if they went as an adult, if you've never gotten a chance to see it before, what your thoughts were. I'd love it to come by the show notes this week over at wdwradio.com. Leave your comments there. Better yet, you can even call the voicemail. It's even easier. 407-900-9391. Share your memories of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And is this something maybe you'd like to see brought back, right? If they could fix the operational issues, Ryan, I I know what our answer is, that we would love to see something like this come back. Absolutely. You know, if they could fix the operational issues, if they could, you know, find a way to make it, you know, more effective for everyone and more accessible for everyone. I, you know, I, I'd love to be, to be back on the sub with Nemo. I would as well too. I would as well too. So listen, I am happy. We finally, uh, gave captain Nemo his due here, uh, on the show. I also want people to go and check out your blog. It's over at MainStreetGazette.com. It's MainStGazette.com. I'll link to it in this week's show notes. Of course, we've got many more trips, Ryan, on the Wayback Machine and DSIs to do. So uh, I look forward to having you come back again. I can't wait. I was going to end off with a really bad Captain Nemo. I thought about it myself, and I was like, eh, no, we've, 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 we've tortured them enough today. Gather your belongings, take small children by the hand, and watch your step. Better I did that than trying to sing like Chris Douglas and sing Whale of a Tale, so. <laughs> Got a whale of a tale to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we are approaching our home port. We've enjoyed having you aboard on this adventurous voyage through liquid space, our last frontier on the planet Earth. It's time for the Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week, where I ask you to challenge yourselves to see how well you know Walt Disney World history. Pay attention to the details, maybe what you see or what you hear in attractions or the queues by asking you to identify where in Walt Disney World you may have heard a sound clip. A winner is going to be selected at random every week for a chance to win a Disney prize package. But before we get to this week's question, let's go back to last week, review the question and select our winner. So last week, we had just gotten off the WDW Radio Cruise on the Disney Dream with Disney legend Richard M. Sherman. So I wanted to ask you a question about the Disney Cruise Line, but with a Walt Disney World element to it. Actually, that question was a bit of foreshadowing for this week's show, because I asked you what sunken piece of a Walt Disney World attraction 
could be found in the waters off Disney's private island, Castaway Key. And of course, all of you, and thanks to the hundreds of you who entered, got this one correctly. And it was, of course, like we talked about on this week's show, a 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea submarine. So you were playing for all of my audio tours of Walt Disney World, a WDW Radio luggage tag, button, and a signed photo of Richard Sherman from the cruise. And our winner last week is Shanna Paulson. So Shanna, congratulations. Please email me your address. I'll get your package out to you right away. If you played last week and didn't win, thank you so much for playing. And don't worry, because here's your next opportunity to enter in this week's Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge. So let's go ahead and stick with 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I talked about how voice actor Pete Renaday played Captain Nemo, and he's also found in a number of other Walt Disney World attractions. You can actually go back and listen to my interview with Pete on show number 232. Just visit wdwradio.com slash 232, or you can find it in iTunes. But this week's question is simply this. What country bear did Pete Renaday voice? You can send your answers to contest at wdwradio.com. You have until 11.59 p.m. on Sunday, November 25th. And again, you're playing for a prize package that includes the audio tours, WDW Radio luggage tag and button. And because so many of you entered last week, I'm going to give away another signed photo of Richard M. Sherman from the Sherman Brothers. So good luck and have fun. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thanks again for taking the time and tuning in this and every week. Be sure and come by the website over at wdwradio.com for our blog, videos, discussion forums, lots more. You can also join us every Wednesday night at 7.30 p.m. Eastern for WDW Radio Live. It's a live, interactive broadcast where we talk about this week's Walt Disney World news, and you can ask and answer questions. Be part of the show in the interactive chat room. Again, that's every Wednesday, 7.30 p.m. Eastern. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Lou Mangiello. You can also connect with and keep in touch with me and the show on Facebook, Pinterest, Google+, lots of different ways by visiting wdwradio.com slash connect. There you can also subscribe to our free email newsletter with discounts and special offers in there, as well as our free daily email, which will keep you updated on the latest podcast, blog posts, and videos, and lots more. Again, you can find everything over at wdwradio.com. Of course, my favorite way to connect with you guys is in person. I'm a handshake and a hug kind of guy. So that's why for almost the past five years, we've been having meets of the month in Walt Disney World and our next and forgive me November got just away from me so fast with the cruise and the holidays our next meet of the month is going to be Friday November 30th over at Disney's Hollywood Studios instead of a daytime meet we're going to have an evening meet at 6.30pm over at Backlot Express at the lower level outside seating area this way we can go inside if the weather's too cold again 6.30pm Friday November 30th over at Backlot Express at Disney's Hollywood Studio you can find out more information an RSVP on the events page over at wdwradio.com or our Facebook page as well too. And December, so I'm trying to schedule December as far out as possible, is going to be Saturday, December 22nd, sort of a WDW Radio holiday party. I want to celebrate the season with you guys, my friends, in the Magic Kingdom, where it is the most wonderful time of the year with Main Street and the entire park decorated for, for the holidays. So we'll meet over at 1 o'clock again Saturday, December t- 22nd in the Magic Kingdom. I'll have more information. And again, anyone and everyone is invited and welcome to attend come by yourself, bring the whole family. 
Uh, it's completely free and open to everyone. Again, check the events page over at wdwradio.com for more information about Meets of the Month and everything we have planned coming up in 2013. Because in addition to the meets at Walt Disney World and our plus events there, we are going to go on the road and take our events to other places around the country, including Las Vegas, New York, Disney's Resort out in Alani. We've got our cruise on the Disney Fantasy November 2nd through the 9th. We can find all that, again, over on the events page at wdwradio.com. Hope to have a chance to meet you guys there. Thanks, as always. This week is all about giving thanks, so I'm very, very thankful to my partners and sponsors, Mouse Fan Travel, they are my recommended travel provider. It's who I use, not only providing the best possible prices, all available discounts, but most importantly, their level of service. And I saw it this past week on the Disney Cruise, where our, our cruise in the Disney Dream is exceptional. And it's all at no additional cost to you. You can find them over at mousefantravel.com. And when you come into the parks, maybe you want something a little bit bigger, right? You want to bring the whole family down for the holidays. AllStarVacationHomes.com has everything from condos to seven-bedroom homes. There's room for everybody. There's game rooms, your own pool, spas, and lots more. You can visit them over at AllStarVacationHomes.com. And one of the best ways to get Disney magic delivered right to your door or your iPad is through Celebrations Magazine. It's a bi-monthly print magazine that you can also get digitally. You can visit them, subscribe, and order back issues over at CelebrationsPress.com. And finally, my friends, and you are my friends, whether we have met yet or not, all I ask is that if you like the show, please help spread the word. Let others know about it. Tweet out that you're listening. Share links to your favorite episodes on Facebook or Pinterest or Google Plus or your favorite discussion forums. And please come by, rate and review the show and leave a comment in iTunes. Very, very much appreciated. And finally, most importantly, with this week being Thanksgiving, I am more thankful than ever to each and every one of you for taking the time out of what I know is a very busy day and a very busy week to tune in and listen to the show and be so supportive and be such good friends and let me share something I'm so passionate about with you in so many different ways. And to you, I say thanks. To you, I say to remember that I want to see you do what you love every day. So remember, today is never going to come again. So start working on a goal, help others, take that leap of faith and make today and every day count. Believe in yourself and keep moving forward. Thank you again so, so very much. I hope you have a very happy and safe holiday. So until next time, see ya. Hi, Lou. This is Dominic Zamponia, Disney Dom in the Box. And I wanted to let you know that my wife and our 11-month-old son, Dominic Angelo, and myself were on the WDW Dream Cruise 2.0 and had an awesome time. Uh, we weren't really sure if we were going to go, and actually we had our son uh, determine whether we were going to go. We put all his favorite toys in front of him, uh, one of them being a Mickey Mouse. And if he uh, picked any of the others, we weren't going on the cruise, but uh, thankfully he went right for Mickey Mouse, and that's when we determined and decided we were going on the cruise with you guys, and it was an incredible time, a beautiful ship, and seeing everyone with the, the lanyards really made it feel like we were connected to something real special and, and, and made it feel like home. Uh, we enjoyed meeting you and, and Becky and Tony and Scott and Vicky and, uh, and especially uh, Richard Sherman. 
his his concert was was incredible. And I'll admit, I did get misty eyed, you know, flashing back to to the times I heard those songs in in the the movies and and the attractions that uh, are so so touching and important, you know, to our to our childhoods. And uh, were, I'm happy that I was able to introduce my 11 month old son to to Mr. Sherman, so that uh, he knows that there is. Uh, you know, there's a lot of gifts that people have, and Mr. Sherman is definitely an inspiration. We are honored to uh, also receive an award for our banner, and uh, we're very proud of that. We want to thank you, and hopefully we'll be able to see you at a meet in the future. That's our dog barking in the background. But uh, just wanted to say happy Thanksgiving to you and your family and to everyone in the WDW radio family. Please have a... uh, Happy and thanks. Happy Thanksgiving and a blessed Thanksgiving. Thanks. Oh, Lou, it's Darlene Nagy. I'm calling from the Disney Boardwalk this morning, and it is a little on the chilly side, not as cold as it is in Buffalo. But I just went to the Boardwalk Bakery where we had our meetup last year before our cruise in the morning. And I got a nice bagel and coffee to go, and I am just strolling the boardwalk. It's absolutely beautiful. I love this venue. Uh, today we're hitting Disney Hollywood Studios, and tomorrow we're hitting Magic Kingdom. And then, sadly, I have to go home on Tuesday. I'm not very happy, but this is very happy. I'm going to make the best of it. My last two days, I'm glad I bumped into you the other day. I'm along with a lot of other great friends uh, like Xanaland and Otis and Glenn and Shelly and her mom. It was wonderful. I had a great time and my friend Nicole, I seen her. It was it's been a very fantastic, fantastic trip this time too. Like always, I love Disney. Okay. I won't keep you. Have a great day. Have a magical day. Everybody have a great Thanksgiving. Bye. See you real soon. Hey, Lou. It's Jamie from Chicago. I just wanted to call and congratulate you on three third shows. I just listened to the newest episode um, the other day while I was at uh, work. Well, not while I was at work, but while I was waiting to start work. Um, but anyways, about the um, cruise, and um sounded like it was just a great time. I am so sorry that I missed out on it. Um, unfortunately, life happened and things like that, so I couldn't make it. But um, I am going to do everything in my power to make it on 3.0 next year. It sounds awesome. Um, so I'm definitely going to be in touch with my wonderful MEI travel agent, Jan, to start seeing about that. Um, I've just been catching up on a lot of the podcasts lately. I, I haven't called in in a while. I've just been really busy um, out here in Chicago just trying to... Um, keep up with things going on, but definitely keeping up with the show, keeping up with the website, um, been submitting a couple articles in there, so it's really cool to still be a part of the family, even though I'm not as involved as I was for a while, but um, again, I just wanted to say congratulations, and I keep up with everything going on, um, just happy that we're at 300 shows, and I'm looking forward to the next 300, okay, so Hope everyone's doing well. Take care, and talk to you soon. Bye. Hi, Lou. It's Emma from the UK here, also known as Pink Emma in the box, and Emma with the British accent on the newscast the other week. 
Um, I just wanted to call and congratulate you on reaching 300 episodes of the show. Thanks for keeping the Disney magic alive for us all, especially when we're stuck in a cold and wintry UK. Um, that's it. Just keep up the great work and thank you. Hope to speak to you and my fellow box people very soon. Cheerio and God save the Queen. You've got a friend.